And by the grace of God, strong sponsorship, and Alcoholics Anonymous, um, I have a sobriety date of August 30th, 1989. And for that, I become increasingly more grateful. Because when I first came in here, I thought, you know, big deal, I quit drinking. You know, all right. And I, you know, I, I didn't even have a sobriety date, really. I, you know, end of August, I can remember I was at this big group, this therapy group I went to. And, uh, and I said, you know, I'm an alcoholic. It was right around August, some, sometime in 89. And everybody went, yay! And I thought, well, that's the end of that. You know, I'm an alcoholic. Yes, that's it. Everybody clapped. And I thought, well, that's the end of it. And um, <laughs> I thought that way for about five years. And then I finally started working the steps because things got so ugly. Um, anyway, that was a little prelude. Uh, I want to really thank the committee for inviting me here. And also thanks you to Vicki and to Patty and to all the women that um, came for brunch this morning. I really appreciated, appreciated you all all coming out. And um, you all have shown me a very good time. You've shown me actually what hospitality looks like. <laughs> um, because I... I've pretty much have been a taker my whole life. And if somebody had said, there's a speaker coming in town, why don't you meet her for breakfast, I would have gone, I am busy. And, and I just really appreciated that people came out and met me for breakfast, because I know that you're all alcoholics, so I know it couldn't have been an easy choice. <laughs> so, thank you. Um, I, you know, I never know when I, I get up there exactly what this is going to turn out like. So uh, the other day I had an experience. I'm part of the CPC committee in Chicago, and I went to talk to a nursing class. And the year before, I talked to that nursing class and had really, you know, been right on and given a very good talk. And I must say so myself. And uh, and then this year I went there and nothing entered my brain. And I thought, oh no, it's gone. You know, I can never talk in front of any Alcoholics Anonymous meeting again. And I, so I just, I sat there for a couple of minutes. I said, you know what? Really nothing is coming into my head to talk about. So what I'll do is I'll just answer any questions you have. And then I, I talked to my sponsor later on that night and I said, nothing happened, Teresa. It was a serious thing. She goes, oh, we usually answer questions from the audience. That was a good thing. <laughs> oh, okay. So God was working in my life. You know, I'm always afraid that he's really stopped or something's gotten in the way. But it, it always turns out to be fine. So I will tell you a little bit about me, what I was like, what happened, and what I'm like now. And it's very funny to be introduced as a nice woman. <laughs> you know, I, I have fooled people my whole life thinking that I'm nice. I'm really not nice at all. And it's really been through working the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous that I am becoming nice. And I've always thought it would be nice to be nice, but I, my head just did not run along those paths. I, you know, I, I don't think, oh, that's so pretty on you. I think, oh, that color's awful on you. Uh, or I think, why are you wearing, you know, why are your clothes wrinkled? Or I, and a couple years ago, when I first started working the steps, I started listening to my thinking. It was... Uh, I had a suggestion from somebody, it's just like, pretend that there's a tape recorder on your your shoulder for the day and just listen to what you're, you're thinking. And I started doing that and it was all so negative. It was all just like, oh, negative and judgmental and horrifying. And I had never really listened to what was going on up there before. A lot of, a lot of uh, the reason for that was 
it was the first time in a long time that there were only a couple of voices up there. Because when I entered Alcoholics Anonymous, there were 20, 30, 40 voices going on at one time. And you really can't tell what they're saying. It's just, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, and occasionally an expletive. And, and, uh, and you're hearing all this kind of angry stuff going on in your head all day long. And, and I didn't think anything about it. I just, I just thought everyone's head was like that. And um, I can remember going to, at that point in time, I was going to Al-Anon. And uh, I was going to the meetings. I had my little girl in the back of the car. And I had my fingers, you know, crushed into the steering wheel. And I was in the car going, shut up, shut up, you know, to my head, thinking nothing of it. And, uh, and, and just driving to the Al-Anon meeting like that. And I never mentioned to anyone that I was doing that in the car. That's been the oddest thing about alcoholism is that all of this stuff that, that I've, I used to do, that used to happen, I never thought anything about, and in retrospect, I've been looking at it and going, oh, you know, whoa. <laughs> it was a very hard time. And when I was in the middle of it, I, I really didn't know. Um, so I'll tell you just a little bit about when I was first drinking. I, I didn't have a drink when I was very young. I started drinking when I was in high school. And, um, and again, mind you, everything that I know about my drinking now is in retrospect. And, and I started learning about my drinking. I got a sponsor when I was about five years dry. And I was about to divorce my husband and dump my kids. I had two children at that point in time. And, oh, yeah, I had two children. And, um, and still do. And still have a husband. <laughs> and it's all a miracle of alcohol. It's anonymous. So uh, I had two children, and my head was telling me, my, my husband had been involved in a motorcycle accident. And I had a three-year-old child, and I had a six-month-old child when this happened. And, uh, and I was bitter. <laughs> I was really angry anyway, and I just didn't understand why that had to happen, too. And, and I was in the shower washing my hair and all I was hearing was you know what divorce him that's all you have to do is just divorce him just you know and that you'll just divorce him it'll prove to the the court of law that you uh that, that just destroyed the marriage this accident destroyed the marriage you'll get a lot more money get more money you can marry him later if you want to you can marry him later but you know just get more lots because a lot more money you just divorce this guy right now just and and every morning in the shower this is what I would hear and again and again just the same thought over and over again starting continuing through the loop starting again, and it was a lot of pressure. And um, what happened is that I, I was doing this kind of therapy stuff, and I went with those women for a creativity weekend, um, <laughs> thinking that creativity was the way out of my head. And, um, and they encouraged me to leave my husband because I was building a case. I was building a case that he was the problem and that uh, that's why I was so unhappy and I needed to leave and uh, he could take care of the children because it was awful being a mother and I just wanted to work and I could go back to New York and I could get my old job again and and I could and I moved out. I called him from my friend's house where I started renting a room and uh, and I said, you know, I'm not coming home, I'm moving out. And he's like, what? What is wrong with you? And I'm like, I have to go now. And I, I hung up on him. And uh, I said, I made some rules up that I would come and I would take care of the children, but that he would have to have left the house by the time I came because I did not want to have any contact with him. I think it was called abstinence or something. 
I don't know, had a lot of terms for a lot of different things. And, um, and he said, you know, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to greet you in the morning, and I'm going to tell you goodbye, and I'm not going to play by those rules. And so I said, all right. You know, and I would get to the house around 6.30 in the morning, and my, my kids would be placed up against the window, you know, looking at me, and, um, and I would come in, hello, good morning, and then I, I was exhausted. I was exhausted all the time, and I visited my life like a grandparent would visit a life or something. In fact, I can remember having that thought, you know, oh, this is what it must be like to have grandchildren, because you don't have any responsibility, and you don't have, um, you know, I didn't fix dinner, I didn't shop. I was actually debilitated by my untreated alcoholism. My life just kept, it kept on getting worse and worse and worse, and, and I had no idea what my problem is. You know, I just, I kept on thinking that if I would just divorce him, then I would be fine. And I remember walking back to my friend's house one night and thinking, you know what, where are you going to meet another guy? And, and then thinking, well, I'll meet him in a bar, but I won't drink. I've always met nice people in bars. <laughs> You know, this is at five years dry, and, and this is, this is, it was like a chess game was happening or something like that, and the only thing standing between me and a drink was my husband and my family, and my disease was making it so it was impossible for me to stay in my house anymore, and I had to leave, and then I was going to go to a bar, I wasn't going to drink, how long is that going to last? I mean, I have never sat in a bar and not drank, and I've never met nice people in bars either. So it was lying to me big time, and I didn't even know it. And right around that time, I, I went back out to uh, this um, big hotel where we all met, and um, I went to an AA meeting. And um, I sat in that meeting, and I told my sad tale, and there were a lot of people crying because I had the story down pat. And, and the woman next to me is like, what a crock. And I'm thinking... <laughs> You know, everybody else is crying, and she's going, I treat my husband that way, too. And what I know about that is it's alcoholism. And, you know, there's this little tiny bell of truth that went off in the back of my head, and I thought, you are interesting. Because I knew somewhere deep inside me, I would go to group, and I would say, you know, okay, I'm going to tell you this story, and I'm going to tell you, but there's something wrong with it. I don't know exactly what it is, but can you catch the lie? Can you tell me what it is that I'm saying? And the woman that was the leader of this group said, you know, yeah, I know what you're talking about, but I don't know what it is. Why don't you just pray? And that was, thank goodness, a lifesaver for me that she didn't try and interpret it or anything. And, um, and I kept on praying, and eventually what I came to um, was that I went to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. I was in my kitchen one day. I prayed to God, you know, the way I always did, in a pinch. And I said, God, I can't do this alone anymore, and I need help. And I heard, why did you quit drinking? And so I immediately quit listening. And I said, ah, I'll go back to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I started sitting in the meetings, and I still didn't get it. I didn't get it for a very long time. And, and uh, even with sponsorship, I didn't get it for a very long time. She sent me like 12 tapes of people that she thought might be able to get into my head. And finally, I heard Clancy. I heard that tape, Alcoholism, the Disease of Perception. And, um, and I... I thought, I got that. You know, I've got that disease. And, and I understood finally that I have a disease, of, a thinking disease. And I have a problem with perception and that my perception of things is quite often not right. Um, I started drinking, I was telling you about this a long time ago now, I started drinking in high school and um, 
And the first time I really had a lot to drink, well, the first time I ever had scotch, I can remember going, Beer, first beer, drank a little bit of that, thought, mm, how do people drink 12 of these? And I, I drank the rest of it, but I didn't, I didn't, uh, I didn't ever have beer again. Uh, but I was proud of that. You know, I thought, I'm an expensive date. <laughs> so I drink scotch. Um, and then I had wine, didn't like that very much at all. And they talk about it in the book. They talk about not liking the taste of alcohol, but liking the effect of it. And, and when I went back and started looking at my drinking, I started to realize that when I had that first drink and I could feel it going down to my fingertips, I went, you know, yeah. And, and I started feeling that sense of well-being that I was always after. You know, watching girls in the high school halls wearing short skirts and, and, you know, looking at ease in their bodies and looking at them and going, okay, now she walks like that. And she says, hey, Taylor. And I'm like, you know, mm. And uh, so I, I just thought, you know, if I could wear those kind of clothes, if I could go to New York and get my my material and if I could wear those clothes or if I could have my hair like that if I was always trying to fix myself from the outside you know trying to feel comfortable inside of my skin by doing what other people were doing who seemed to be comfortable and yet I never fit in and and finally the night of graduation night I bought a bottle of scotch for my guidance counselor <laughs> never asked him what he drank but I thought oh I like scotch and he wasn't there but Peter and I sat in the cloakroom and we started, you know, two tables and a chair. Sorry, one table and two chairs. <laughs> well, that would have been wild, huh? Two tables, one chair. But no, 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 it wasn't that bad yet. <laughs> it was only my first bottle of scotch. Uh, and we sat in there, and about halfway through the bottle, uh, somebody came and took our bottle away. And my thought was, oh, they are so cheap here. They wanted to buy drinks. And, and I didn't think... Perhaps they think I'm drinking too much. Perhaps they're concerned about me. Perhaps they're trying to prevent me from having an accident going home. I didn't think any of that kind of stuff. I just thought, oh, you're so cheap, you know. You won't let me drink the rest of my scotch. And I stayed up all night long with Peter, and, and we went to the park, and he played his guitar, and it was a wonderful night. And I really felt like I was at one. And I really had the best evening of my whole life. It was wonderful. I woke, you know, I was in the Glen, and I remembered everything, and... And I walked in, and my mom had been concerned, and uh, and I was I thought that she was stupid, and um, and I had a wonderful evening, and um, and I decided I was going to go to college in New Orleans, Louisiana. That was another thing. I picked my college because uh, there are a lot of places I applied to, and they were all dry counties, and I I discarded them one after another, and then I decided that I would go to New Orleans, and and that's obviously not a dry county. <laughs> And, and that's where I really started drinking a lot. And I was very proud of the way I drank. And I was proud of the fact that I only drank scotch. I drank it straight and warm. I was proud of the fact that halftime at a football game that I couldn't even focus on the scoreboard anymore. You know, and I would be like, whoa, what does that say? And I, I loved it. I just loved just not being able to focus. I loved just that feeling of abandonment that I, I felt. Just like, woo! And, and I liked the way I was when I drank. I had a great, 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 great time. I just, I loved it. And um, and then when I got out of college, I started going to this 4 a.m. bar at Fat Harry's. And um, New Orleans, St. Charles Avenue is still there. And um, and we would drive there after work and start drinking. I'd drink until 4 a.m., get up to go to my job at 7, be hungover. Well, but I only drank on Thursdays and Fridays, you know, on the weekends. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't that bad. 
And, uh, and I, I just never thought that it hindered my job. I got promoted. I got raises. Um, and I, I just, I really thought that drinking was great. And then I got married. And I got married because I couldn't think of anything else to do. And, um, and this is, you know, really. And, and I didn't think anything about that either. I can remember picking up people at the airport and, and just talking about my husband-to-be. And then my cousin going, did you think you should be getting married to this guy? I'm like, oh, God, the invitations are already out. What am I supposed to do? And, and I, didn't, I didn't make choices. I didn't have a plan. You know, I just didn't like my job anymore, and I didn't really know what else I wanted to do. So I just thought, well, let's get married. He asked me, let's go. And, um, and I didn't stay married to that man. And, and, you know, I didn't know how to stay married. I really didn't. And I, you know, I got married, and then I, I, I remember riding around with him and thinking, I just want to drink. And thinking, what, what are you going to do tonight? What are we going to do? And he said, I don't know. What do you want to do? And I'm thinking, oh, man, this is not going well at all. And I said, let's go visit some friends. And he goes, I really don't know anybody. I said, well, you better find some friends right now. I'm going to divorce you. That was first month of our marriage. And, and I don't know how to have a social life. And I'm used to going to a bar until 4 a.m., and I don't know how to be married. And, and you know what? There was, really, there was no hope for that marriage. There really wasn't because I wasn't done drinking yet. And he was getting in the way of my drinking. And so I found people that drank like me. I did a play. I started, I used to call it dating. I started dating this guy in the cast, but that's really not the truth of the whole thing. <laughs> Now is it? <laughs> so we um, started having, and um, and it was great. You know, I'm married, and I'm having sex with a guy I'm going to play with, and I really felt, you know, I felt like one. I felt good. I I had that, you know, home at in Fort Worth, and then I had this other life in Dallas, and I liked that. You know, one was exciting, and there was the and then there's the other one that's just stable, just in case things don't work out. And, and that's how I treat people. I use them. I use them. I don't bring anything to the relationship. I just take from the relationship. And, and I was drinking a lot, and he didn't drink that much. And I thought, my boyfriend moved to New York, so I thought, well, I'm going to move to New York, too. And, and uh, I went up there to visit, and I just happened to get a job. And um, when I'd been up for this job, I was in the kitchen of my cousin's house, and I said, you know what, God, if I don't get this job, what I'll do is I will go back to Fort Worth, Texas, and I will stay married, and I'll have children, and I'll join the Junior League. And I always thought God looked at that and just went, ooh, let's give her the job. You know? Well, that is just not going to work out. And, uh, and so I got this job, and it was a great job. It really was, and, and it kept me really occupied. And, um, and what I started to notice is that I got more and more dissatisfied. Even though it was a great job, I got more and more dissatisfied. So that after I'd been there for five years, I had to quit this job. I had to quit the job because I was so angry because they were taking advantage of me. You know? And I was something great and nobody saw how great I was. And again, perception problem. You know, I had a really good job and they really liked me there. But I couldn't, I couldn't deal with it because quite frankly, I had to drink. And so I moved out to Los Angeles, and um, I found these people who drank like me, and it was great. We would go to the beach at 3 o'clock in the afternoon to watch the sunset, 
So I wouldn't set for five hours, but that's okay. We wanted to have front row seats. And that's why we arrived there at 3 o'clock. And, and we would sit there and drink and watch the sunset. Eventually it would set. And I, and I loved it. I loved being on the beaches in California. And I loved drinking. And I started doing a lot of cocaine. I never bought it, just used other people's. And, and because I didn't buy my own, I didn't have a problem. You know, and, and I had a, a wonderful, wonderful time. And then I met this guy. And, and one of the first things I noticed about him is that, you know, he had some white stuff around his nose. And, and my disease was progressing. And I thought, ooh, you are interesting. And, and I, I started going out with him, and it was love at first sight. And, uh, and eventually I, you know, I went to meet his parents. It all looked good. Um, and I still had a boyfriend in California, but things weren't going well there. My relationships, after a while, they all just started to fall apart. I, because when the first bloom of everything was over, I couldn't, I mean, I would tell people I loved him, but I didn't know how to love. And I would tell people, you know, I, I love you, I love you, I love you. And I can remember my husband saying one time, well, if you love me, how come I can't feel it? And I thought, that is your problem. But I didn't know how to give love, and I didn't know how to receive love. And actually, I learned how to do that from my sponsor. You know, somebody that knows me inside and out, and who is always there for me, always answers my phone call, never judges me. Sometimes she's aghast at what I've done, but she doesn't ever go, oh, don't ever call me again, and slams the phone down on me. She just goes, you know how I do it? And this is, yeah, we're a lot alike. And then she'll give me some direction, but she never, ever said that I was something that she didn't want to have anything to do with. And um, so I ended up moving back to New York, getting my old, actually I got a job that I got fired from. Now that's something interesting too. You know, a lot of times in Alcoholics Anonymous, people will say, have you ever lost a job because you were alcoholism? And I thought, like, no, not me. And then in the process of working the steps, all of a sudden I, I remembered that I went into this office one day. I said, I, I would like to have some vacation. And the guy shuffled some papers and he said, you know, you're not going to need a vacation because you're not going to be on the show anymore. And I, I didn't think I was fired. I immediately turned it around to how stupid they were and how I didn't like it there anyway. And they had made a mess of the storyline ever since I was there. And I just stormed out of there. And, uh, and I landed on my feet, you know. No St. Helena for me. I got offered my old job back again. And, and it really looked like for a long time that, that um, the job I'd gotten fired from was the problem. Um, but in my amends process, I found out that it was my actions. Again, one more time. So um, I got my old job back again. I got pregnant. I ended up getting married to the husband that I have now. And, um, and when I got pregnant with my daughter, I quit drinking during that period of time, and then when I went back to drinking, and I was, I was so angry when I was pregnant, so angry, and it's like, and I could explain, so angry, and it's like, and I could explain that too. I was so angry because my body was disappearing, because men didn't find me attractive anymore, because I wasn't making a lot of money anymore, because I didn't have the job that I had anymore. And I had no idea that what I had is alcoholism. And if I don't drink, I am in a bad mood. And I have, I am in a, we are talking bad mood. We're talking rage coming up from my toes, bad mood. We're talking when he comes home late at night, me just screaming at him, screaming at him because I'm concerned about him drinking. 
And if you don't just quit drinking, then I wouldn't have to act this way anymore. And just, really, it was awful. It was, and, and, and I justified the whole thing. Because it's like, I am pregnant, and you're drinking, and it is awful. And I was an Al-Anon. I was an Al-Anon, and those women were crying for me. They really were. Everybody, oh, this is so terrible, and he's really still drinking. I'm like, yes! And, and every day, same story. But, you know, as I told the story more and more, it got better and better and better. You know, if there's ever a, a point in time when, when people didn't really, you know, they kind of go, well, what about that? I would close that hole. You know, I get it so it was a better story. It was getting to be a really good, like, waterproof story, watertight story. And... Um, so I quit drinking with, with Liza, and then after I was done nursing her at six months, we went to Italy, and that's when I started drinking again. And, and drinking wasn't the same again. I hadn't had a drink for, you know, about 15 months or so, and, and alcohol didn't work for me anymore. And it didn't keep the rage down anymore. And it didn't, it didn't mellow me out anymore. And I was fighting with my husband every day, and we're talking. He'd come home at 4 o'clock, and I would just start lighting into him. And, and we had this, this um, joke, you know, about both of us having a cross in the backyard and comparing our days, whose day is worse. Well, your day was like that. Well, listen to my day. And he, he strays, and he said he'd have a losing day, and I'd go, well, I could make more money than you anyway. I mean, I had no compassion whatsoever. And I don't know why that man stayed. You know, I really don't. I treated him terribly. And... So I quit drinking. I quit drinking right around in there, August 1989, and um, I just kept on, I kept on getting angrier and angrier and angrier. And then finally, I was out in Montana, and and then I met my sponsor. And what's happened since then is something that that I didn't know Alcoholics Anonymous is about. Because when I sat in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And in Al-Anon, too, you know. I looked at the steps. I looked at them on the wall. And I thought, and people would say, work the steps. And I would go, how? And nobody could tell me. And then I'd give a lead, like on the 11th step. And, and I'd get the 12 and 12. And I'd read it. And I'd take notes. And then I'd give what I thought were pretty much dynamite leads on a step that I'd never worked. And, uh, and read prayers and meditations out loud to people. And I didn't tell people that I had stacks and stacks of these books that I kept on buying and would never crack open. You know, I didn't tell them about the voices in my head. I didn't tell them about the fights going on in my house. I didn't tell them the fact that I couldn't stand being a mother. I hated it. I didn't tell them that when my little girl woke up in the morning that I would lie in bed like I was wrapped in saran wrap and think another day like yesterday. And I hated it. I hated every single day. I hated every day. I could barely get out of bed. The only reason I got out of bed is because I had a baby and I had to take care of her. I would go downstairs and I would say, you know, what do you want for breakfast? And, you know, she said, cereal. I go, all right. And I go, you want milk? <laughs> and she's like, yeah. And, I'm, you know, and she was cheery and upbeat. And I was just, I was walking through a fog every day. And the, the voices were getting louder and louder. At one point in time, I remember get down on my knees in my bedroom and asking God to take the voices away, and he did. And it was quiet. It was so weird. It was so strange because it was like a vacuum that happened in my head all of a sudden. And, and I, didn't, I didn't know peace. I woke up hating everything, 
went to bed the same way every day. It's like a continuous conversation happening in my head. You know, going to bed and then, and then waking up. You know, wake up and then hating my life and hating my husband and hating my kid and 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 hating the fact that I couldn't work anymore and and becoming more and more unemployable. Unemployable. I I started. Um, got this job in a play, this uh, famous guy asked me to be in it, and I thought, well, I'll do it because then I'll become a movie star. And um, I got a job instead doing voiceovers, which is what I do now. I do um, radio spots and TV spots, just the voice part. And, and then what you have to do in my profession is you have to read. You know, read the line, and uh, what would happen in my head is that my head would be going, Oh, you're not going to be safe. You're not going to be able to read that. You're not going to be able to read that. You're going to be able to say that. Where are you going to go? Oh, there you go. Didn't I tell you? You know? Negative, negative, negative. Every single moment of every day. And fear just coming out of my pores. You know, I'd get down in the elevator and I'd say, God, help me to get this job. I need the money. Help me to get the job. And I never thought, you know, how can I be useful to these people? It did not even enter my mind. So I started working the steps with this woman. And, and she'd say things like, you know, just work the steps, Taylor. And I would go, what? What does that mean? And she just worked the steps. What? She go, why don't you greet the newcomer? No. <laughs> absolutely no. I don't like anybody there. I'm not gonna do this. A quick. I'm not gonna. No. And and then you know my voices were still and I was miserable. I'd be sitting in that meeting, sitting in that chair, digging in my purse because I'm busy. You know it's the break. I hated the break. You know, that break when everybody sits around and talks and I'm just, click. And I hated everybody and, and, um, and finally I got up and I'd start greeting the newcomer and I felt just so weak. You know, I just, I, I felt like I'd have sweaty palms, limp palms and just like, hi, my name's Taylor. I haven't seen you here before. Welcome. You know? And I thought, oh, God, what is God turning me into, you know? He's turn me into some kind of wimpy woman, some kind of sappy, disgusting, you know, where uh, this has been, you know, a turquoise blue self-belted silk dress with puffy sleeves. <laughs> you know? And I'm going to wear flesh-colored hose with beige and I'm going to work in Bloomingdale's and people are going to say, oh, didn't you used to be? And I'd be going, yes, but I'm sober. <laughs> I did not have a good picture of sobriety at all. I mean, I, I thought, I hadn't been drinking for a long time, but I thought what she was asking me to do was unreasonable. And, um, and she kept on just saying, you know, get out of yourself. I'm like, ah, I don't want to. And um, so she sent me all these tapes. I started listening to them in the car, and actually that provided some relief for me because my head was so loud in the car, and I would find that I would be listening to these tapes, and I would be hearing AA speakers, and I would be identifying, I'd be laughing, and I'd be out of myself for that particular amount of time. And, and then she also told me that I needed to start going to meetings, and always the same ones. And um, I can remember one time I had a very busy day, and I had to bring in the recycling right at the time that my meeting was and I had to go to the grocery store. Now, I had been going to the mustard seed in Chicago, and that goes from 9 until 10.15, and it really seemed like that was the most desirable time to do anything during the day. And um, so I, I called her up just to kind of tell her that I hadn't gone to a meeting that day because I'd done recycling, and, and I wanted her to understand. And um, she said, she kept on saying, put AA first and the rest will follow. 
Um, you know, I don't understand what kind of day I had. I had to do the recycling, and I had to go to the grocery store, and then I had lunch with a friend. And I just didn't have time for me. And she was going, just put an A first, and the rest will follow. And she says, and it's like the only excuse that you ever have for not going to an AA meeting is if there's something going on with your kids or if there's something going on with your work. And if you find that you can't attend that meeting anymore because those keep on interfering with that time, then get a different meeting and always go to that meeting. And I thought, you know, oh, please. But I started doing that. I started going to that meeting every day at 9 o'clock. And I started greeting a newcomer. And things started getting better. And also, on the bottom of page 98, in the book, book there's, in the big book, there's this um, line that says, argument and fault-finding are to be avoided like the plague. That I need to concentrate on my own spiritual demonstration. So that husband that I argued with every single day, I had to, to stop arguing. That did not happen right away. <laughs> what happened was I would be screaming at him, and then I'd go upstairs and I'd call my sponsor, and then she would say, "Go downstairs and tell me you're wrong." No. <laughs> and then I go downstairs and I go, "That's wrong. Get argue with you. I'll try not to do that anymore." And um, then, then finally one day he looked at me like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah. You said that a lot." And I'm thinking, oh, "You know, you don't know how hard this is to do." So then I started, I'd start fighting, and then I'd go, oh, and I'd leave the room. And then, you know, one day it happened that, you know, I could, instead of reacting to him, I could start praying. This is a sick person just like me. God save me from being angry. How can I be useful to him? You know, and just keep on, while he's saying something, I want to take his nose and put it over his head. <laughs> I'm saying this to myself, and I kind of wait for a little pause in the conversation. And then I go, you know what, I have to talk to you about this later. When I first read those words, because those are directions in the book, and, you know, it should be the privilege of anyone to, and I'm thinking, you know, they don't like women, and women shouldn't have to do that. And, and I just started doing that. And, and I, at one point in time, we were in a car, and I was going like this. No, 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 no. Because I did not want to argue, and I know that if I listened to him, that I would start saying something. And, um, and, we did not argue, and we didn't arrive at the house. You know how you arrive at the house, you've just had an argument, and you have that kind of frigid air between you? And the people that you, you know, you're either going, oh, no, they've just had a fight. <laughs> oh, they're going to be fun to be with tonight. <laughs> but we were able to arrive at the house without, and what I started to see is that in an argument, nobody wins. Sometimes there are differences of opinion. You know, that if I want to be screaming at him that I need to do something else at that time and and I have to talk to you about it at a different time because I have nothing nice to say right now. And and so our house has become a lot more peaceful. People would come over to our, our house and they would say, hmm, your kids are so angry. Can, you know, what, what business is that of yours? And they are not. And, and our kids have, have started to thrive. And... Um, and it's all been a direct result of working the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and following the directions of this sponsor. I, I started to, um, a couple years ago, I started to get pretty flaky. And, and the disease started to come back really strong. And Teresa told me that I needed to get a home group. And I thought, no way. I'm not going to go to a meeting at night. I'm just not going to. And she said, you need to be connected with Alcoholics Anonymous. And I said, I go to the mustard seed, and she said, but they don't have a GSR. And I'm like, you know, I'm not going to go to a meeting at night. I'm just not going to do it. 
And I always, you know, it's like drawing a line in the sand. And I actually uh, hung up on her that night, and I thought, I will find a different sponsor. Thank you very much. And I went to a different. I went to a meeting that night, and I saw, <laughs> you know, I saw what was out there. And I called her back later on that evening. And I said, you know what? Let's start all over again. Um, I don't think that I really heard what you were saying. And. Um, <laughs> And she told me, you have got to find a home group. And, and so this group had just started. I wanted to start my own home group. And she told me that the city of Chicago has thousands of meetings every week, and perhaps there was one that I could attend, but it did not need yet another meeting. So I, I found this meeting. It was on the only night I wanted to go to a meeting, thank goodness, which was Tuesday night. And it's my home group now. And um, you all are all welcome to come. It's called Between the Covers at this moment in time, but we had our first group inventory, and a lot of people don't like that name. You know. I was thinking, who cares? But, you know, it is a group conscience, and um, so we might be changing it, but I will tell you that it's a 6.30 to 7.30 Unity Church, and um, you can always get my, my phone number, and I'll come by and pick you up. That's also new. I remember the sponsor ladies called me up and said, you know what, I've got a woman who's going to be at the airport around 10 o'clock at night, and if, I'd like to give her your phone number so you could go out and talk to her um, if she, if she, you know, needs someone to talk to. I'm thinking, 10 o'clock at night, O'Hare Airport, I'm not going to go. I said, you know, you can have, she can have my phone number, and I have a couple of other phone numbers that I can give her too. And, and I pretty much said I would not be going out to that airport. And then I hung up and I thought, oh, I bet that was wrong. And I called. <laughs> so I called up my sponsor. I said, I think I just said no to an AA request. And I just kind of ran it by her. And she said, you need to be calling that woman back again. So I called her up. I told her I was wrong to do that. And I would, of course, be there. I don't eat pie. So I thought that was a perfect excuse. I don't eat sugar. I don't, I would not, I would love to come. I would definitely be there. If she needs anything, you just tell her to give me a call. And I called up, I said, you know, I've got the same kind of women like me, so I've got women who don't want to do anything. And so I called up one woman. I said, well, you told me to bring some of my women. Well, who do I ask? Nobody's going to want to go. And she said, well, why don't you ask one person you think will say yes and one person you think will say no. So I called up one woman. She said, I'd be, it would be my pleasure. I thought, I wish I'd said that. So I've been so much classier than having to call back and make an amend. And then, um, and then I asked this other woman who said no, and who said exactly what had gone through my my brain. You know, it was 10 o'clock at night. She didn't want to eat pie. O'Hare was a long time away. She didn't want to do it. And uh, and she ended up drinking again. So I thought, well, there's a moral to that story. So uh, actually, she never called. Um, and that's all you have to do. Apparently, all you have to do is be willing. And then a lot of times you don't have to do it. So that's, you know, that's a, okay. <laughs> you know, because I am, I am not a spiritual person. I'm really not. I, you know, I do this because I'm desperate. I do this because I don't like the voices in my head. I do this because um, I hated my life. And I was about to divorce my, my husband and dump my kids. And, and what's happened through the process of working the steps is that I love my husband today. That's a miracle. And I can remember I was lying in bed with him a couple months ago, and I said, you know what, I love you, and I can feel your love. And it had never happened before. 
You know, all the times when I told people that I loved them, I just told them that to keep them around. I just told them that because I thought, you know, that's what you're supposed to say. And who knows what it really means. But, you know, I love you. And I could say it a bunch of different ways. I'm an actress. You know, I could really say it with feeling. Or I could really say it's sexy. Or I could say it a lot of different ways. But I never felt it. I never felt love before. And it's been through the process of working the steps and actually also working with other women and having them call me and having to answer the phone and return the phone calls and, and getting out of cell. You know, just doing stuff even when I don't want to is what's really saving my butt. So um, when I first got invited down here, I thought, you know, Vicki called me, and I thought, who are you? And I thought, you want me to come to Omaha? I thought, you know what, let me call you right back. So I called up my sponsor and I said, who is this woman? And she says, I don't know, did you ask? I thought, no. I said, well, that might be a good place to start. You know, and this is the kind of stuff that I get from her. It's like, did you ask? I said, no. I said, I called her back and I said, you know, this is Taylor again. And I was just kind of wondering, you know, you invited me down for a Christmas party in the first part of December, in March. <laughs> and, um, and I was just kind of wondering, you know, who your group is and how would you hear about me and stuff like that. And then she told me that you know, she's a member of the Fox Hall group. And I thought, oh, I know those people. Hey, I got a note the other, a couple months ago, I got a note from Peggy. I was standing outside the mustard seed and I told this guy to come down and, and go to the Fox Hall group. And, and she wrote me, hi, Taylor, love Peggy. And I thought, you know what, I need to belong. I really do, and I never knew that before. I never knew, I never, I have always tried, I'm a fringe person, you know. I want to be a part of something if it's not too inconvenient for me and if you don't ask me to do anything. I want to enjoy the benefits and I don't want to put in the work. And I, you know, and, and that's exactly the kind of meetings that I was going to. And, um, and you, I would arrive at 10 minutes after 9, the meeting started at 9 o'clock, and I would leave at 10 o'clock because I couldn't sit in my chair any longer. And it's like I'd have these antsy feelings. I would like release out of my chair and I would have to go. And I never talked to anybody, I never met anybody, and I never was getting connected. And what happened for me is that I have a sponsor who's insisted that I get connected with Alcoholics Anonymous. And she's kept on telling me stuff like, put AA first, the rest will follow. I'm like, you know what, if I got my old job back again, then I'd be making a lot of money. And then if I made a lot of money, she goes, you know what, you had that job before and money was not the solution. Hmm. You know, hmm, why not? Hmm, it would be nice if it were. You know, because I, I like being important. And I like everything that money can buy. And, and the truth is, is that my life wasn't good then. You know, that I've had a lot of the stuff that you would think would make you okay. And, and I wasn't okay. And so what I started to do is I started to become more active in Alcoholics Anonymous. I, you know, I, I come and I, I speak and I have, a, uh, I have a commitment in my home group. I just got another one. None of them are good enough for you, for me. <laughs> for you they are, but not for me. <laughs> And, and I always think that, you know, I just want the really important ones. But you know, I, people with a lot of time wash cups. And I'm thinking, you know what, you got a lot of time and you wash cups and, and I, don't want, I don't want to ever have to drink again. I don't want to. And I know that I've got a disease that will kill me. And I know that 97% of us die from this disease. And I also know that if I'm going to be in that 3%, I'm going to have to take some actions that I don't necessarily want to. And that I'm going to have to stay in the middle. 
And the only way that I can stay in the middle is to get connected with you guys and, and get connected with the people who are doing stuff, you know, the people that are enthusiastic. And, um, and the only way I'm going to be able to stay is if I put AA first. And, and my head doesn't tell me that. You know, my head tells me that I've got to take care of my kids. My head tells me that I need to make more money. My head tells me that moving back to New York would be a good idea. My head tells me a lot of different things. And thank God I've got a sponsor because I check those things out. She always has an opinion. And, um, and you know what? I don't have to do what she tells me to do. And sometimes I don't. And what I found is that she really can spot my disease and I can't spot it. So I'm very grateful for her. Um, this is the first Christmas party that I've come to so far this year, and I've been really impressed, and I will take home with me the unity that I see here. It has really touched my heart a lot, you know, and, and our group is three years old, and we've just been through our first group inventory, and, um, and we have some changes that we need to make. But I, what I know is that we have a lot of really sick people there, so that's good. And, and we've got a lot of people who want to stay sober. And I know that if I, if I, if I stay active in Alcoholics Anonymous and, and uh, I'm an active member of my home group and work with new women and do that kind of stuff, um, and, and I have to have a relationship with God. And that's um, why I mentioned him last, but what I've also found is the God that I had when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous was enough to get me here and that it was not enough to get me to stay and that I never worked the second step when I was doing it on my own. I never read that chapter, We Agnostics, and I never examined my idea of God. And what I, I did in the second step was I examined my idea of God and I found out that that God wasn't enough to turn my will and my life over to. So um, I worked that step. And then I worked the third step. I did the fourth and fifth step. I, I'm pretty much through my amends, and I'm doing 10, 11, and 12 on a daily basis. And I know that the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous work. And I also know that I can sit in a meeting forever and ever and ever and never get this. So I'm extremely grateful that I have the gift that I have. Thank you.